Hello, and welcome to Remember the Film, the podcast where we talk about movies and all the things that makes them memorable. This week, we'll be talking about one of the most interesting modern directors working right now, which is David Fincher. And uh, our film to remember for the week is a double feature between his recently released Mank that just came out on Netflix two days ago and uh, the obviously well-known Citizen Kane, which is the movie that Mank is about. It's about the writing of Citizen Kane. And it's obviously well-known. It's obviously really, really, really well-known. If you haven't heard of it, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Why are you listening to a movie for podcasts? I don't know. (laughs) But anyway, uh, I'm Hugo Pinay, and with me, joining me this week, are my usual co-hosts, Jeff Grizzolrich. Hello. And Josh Bradley. Hi. Hello. Hi. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. You know. Uh, our quarantine period is is kind of over. My the whole family is doing it okay. We've all tested negative now, so we're at least uh, free to you know not isolate from each other. We're now free to move Ooh, about nice. the country. Yes. Yeah. No, actually free only to move around the house. Really, just but you know that's better than nothing. <laughs> um, oh, we're we're happy for you. Anyway, you go. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm so happy yes. that everyone pulled through me too and now you can me too honestly because yeah for a there was a, mo- was a there was a moment in there where it got dark because people were getting hospitalized and you know and even if it never they never got uh, really sick but it's still quite scary when they're in the hospital for this disease that is killing people all over the world so, you know for sure yeah. it was stressful but we we pulled through we pulled through um anyway uh film to remember this week is for the first time a double feature we thought it would be interesting to talk about mank which is as released two days ago and because we're talking about mank which is about uh herman j mankowitz who is the one of one of or arguably the only or arguably uh, not even one of the writers of <laughs> citizen kane uh, according if it depends who you listen to if you listen to pauline keel he's the only person who wrote citizen kane if you listen to orson wells he didn't really contribute at all. So, but we'll get into that discussion later. So we're going to be talking about Susan Kane first and then Mank, and then sort of uh, talk about how Mank uh, informs our, our, our view of Citizen Kane and, 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 and all that. Um, but anyway, we're starting with Citizen Kane. <laughs> what, what do I need to say about this? Uh, it was released in 1941 and is largely considered one of the greatest film ever films ever made uh it's usually either the number one or number two spot uh with you know with vertigo and those kinds of movies um but let's just start simple what did you guys think of citizen kane had you seen it before uh etc 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 i have seen it before yeah and um i think it gets better every time like it's 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 really good uh it, it (laughs) <laughs> a lot of a lot of a lot of older movies that you know have certain reputations like i watch them i'm like okay i can see why people like that but like i don't know it feels like homework uh citizen kane yeah. doesn't really feel like homework it's like really really entertaining and, and snappy and it's really enjoyable so it's funny <laughs> that you mentioned that citizen kane doesn't feel like homework to you because the first time i watched citizen kane it literally was homework <laughs> <laughs> i had to watch it in high school uh, for uh, my actually for an Eng- my English class, a literature class, and they you know for some reason decided that Citizen Kane should be a topic in a high school English class. Uh, so we had to watch it for that. And I think uh, part of the reason I didn't enjoy it as much in high school is one because I was in high school and therefore mm-hmm. an idiot. 
Uh, <laughs> but two, checks it, out. Checks I out. was being forced to overanalyze things, and you know, obviously, this movie that is a movie that is worth analyzing, and it right does have analysis, some yeah. really great uh, symbolism in both the way it's shot and the way it's lit, and you know, and all sorts of great things that are worth talking about, but being kind of forced to do it. I didn't, I didn't enjoy the experience in high school. I did enjoy it more this time. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's tough to go back and approach a movie, especially one this iconic that has been referenced or built off of in so many ways for so many other movies for so many years. It's tough to go back and approach it with fresh eyes. So I don't think I will ever be able to fully appreciate it the way that people did when it was new or in the few years after it was new when people started to realize you know what it actually was doing for cinema right yeah i think that um i I think i first saw it in high school as well or not for a class but i was high school age and i also didn't care much for it the first time i saw it you know kind of like you said um a friend of mine teaches high school right now and he he teaches this movie to his students and he says that most of them usually like it most years which i think is really remarkable that a movie from 1941 like high schoolers in 2020 can like find things to like about it i think that kind of speaks to um the movie's power and it's it's staying power hugo what do you think i think it depends yeah i think it depends on how you teach it as well because if if you provide enough context and explain beforehand what it's doing and why it's so significant i think people are going to appreciate it more if you just show teenagers this movie with no context they'll just say oh this is old black and white and some of the acting is a bit hammy and i don't like it because well, if you don't if you don't explain what citizen kane is doing to a modern audience that doesn't maybe isn't as interested in 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 filmmaking and not just you know in, it doesn't it's not that they just don't enjoy movies maybe they enjoy movies but maybe they're not interested in filmmaking they might just see, oh, it's a movie, and it you feels go. relatively modern, and it's just a movie. But uh, I think if you provide enough context and you explain what this movie is and what it was able to do at the time, then it 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 it's impossible to not be in awe of it. It's difficult to not appreciate. I, I think that most people nowadays, I I doubt many people are just like discovering Citizen Kane like out of nowhere like yeah. no one watches this movie without knowing how renowned it is like people in 2020 sure. are only are only coming to citizen kane because they hear it's one of the greatest movies ever made and they want to check out what you know what that means and whether it's it's worthy of that and <laughs> um and i think it's interesting that i mean you guys can we can discuss this i think that most people come to it with that understanding and it like holds up to that scrutiny like people yes. come to it thinking it's the best movie it's one of the best movies ever and like it doesn't really disappoint or like even if you don't like love it or connect with it you know in 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 today's modern times or whatever and you know mm. the, whatever filmmaking style you're used to it's you can still like acknowledge wow this is really good even if it's not for me right yes yeah, no, I, I agree that, and i think that was my experience because i saw it um three days ago for the first time ever mm-hmm. and I didn't. I, I don't feel like I connected to the characters. I don't feel I, I had a bit of a disconnect to the time frame in which it was set. 
because um, I don't know, I'm not an expert in 1930s American politics, and so it, it, I can't really connect. Neither to am that. I, and I doubt Grizz is either. For the no, for the but but even yeah. if you don't connect, you know, to the characters, or if you don't, or if you don't connect emotionally to it, it what it's actually doing from a filmmaking standpoint is so impressive, uh, even by modern standards, that it, 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 I don't know. I think it's impossible not to appreciate if you go into it with the right uh, context. Mm-hmm. The only thing I will say. Uh, that is going to probably set my opinion apart from y'all's is that uh, mm-hmm. for me, the movie, the things that I like best about the movie have very little to do with the actual story or the yes. performances. Uh, so for me, not that the story's bad or anything like that. The story is, is, a, is a good story, but it, it, to me, the story isn't, you know, the iconic part of this movie. It's all about the way it was shot. And so for me, like since I I'm trying to look at it from a complete package perspective, uh, it gets a lot of points for the way it was made, uh, but it, for me it it loses a little bit of points for just not you know and and again it could be just because having watched it years and years later than it came out you know maybe I've just it's seen it referenced too many other ways. To, to be able to uh, see it from that angle. But that's the only drawback for me is that the story is uh, a little uh, self-important. And mm. and mm. to me, that that is a, a slight drawback uh, for my enjoyment. But again, all of that is made up for by how well the movie's made, especially when you find out more and more about the stuff that went into it, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. But that that's like the only downside for me. <laughs> yeah, it, it's unbelievable how good this movie looks. Uh, the cinematography is yes. is is crazy. Um, especially if you've like, you know, seen any other movies from from around the late '30s, early '40s. Like, just nothing looked like this at the time. And um, even some movies today don't like look this good. I think um, whether it be like the composition or the deep focus or the uh, dramatic dramatic lighting. Um, yeah, it just, it, it looks amazing. And again, if you, if you come to this movie expecting it to be, you know, knowing that it's one of the best movies ever made, like that kind of probably puts you in a different mindset to appreciate the shots yeah, more than you might looking in, for in a given those movie. Things. Yeah. And it doesn't disappoint at all. It's, it's the, the cinematography is crazy good. Uh, Greg Tolland was the cinematographer in this. And, um, apparently he liked working with first time directors because they like, didn't know the rules. And so he could kind of do whatever he wanted in this movie. Like, broke the rules quote-unquote cinematography wise and it uh worked out okay yeah well i mean i feel like in a lot of ways it rewrote the rules because going forward you you can see a lot of stuff are influenced by the way things are lit and shot in this movie yeah i mean we talked about the spielberg oneer in our spielberg episode and how it's like you know a minute or two minute long long take that doesn't cut but like kind of has like you know the blocking changes throughout the shot so like that you kind of have different compositions in you know in one shot and and you see that a lot here like i'm thinking about um when he's a kid and like the, there's a shot of him like playing with the snowballs and the camera yes, pulls and the camera back pulls out back. the window and and the mom follows the camera and uh yeah it's awesome it's really good stuff it's great stuff and and i think it's it's interesting that we we happened to have this connection between citizen kane and a david fincher episode because david fincher is a director who does those incredibly complicated long takes and he takes it i think 
what's interesting is that uh, in, in the way that um, Orson Welles and Greg Toland and the people who worked on this movie innovated with these long takes that were done with really interesting practical effects. Because if you look at the making of the way that that specific shot was made was basically the camera is uh, pressed against the glass and it looks outside at the kid playing and then it pulls back, it pulls back, it pulls back and then it goes over a table. And that theoretically at the time wouldn't be possible, but the way they had to do it is they had this table that opened up and then it closed back up and so the camera could move between it. And that is in many ways what Fincher does today, but the way he attaches these incredibly complicated long shots is that he uses live action and then he introduces a digital, you know, a CGI shot that, that simulates live action and continues the shot and he edits them together to make it look like it's one unbroken shot. So. It, it's really interesting that we just happened to to put these two together because they I really they don't did think it's a similar innovation. <laughs> no, it's not a coincidence because obviously, obviously David Fincher is really inspired by by this film in particular, and it's it's no wonder that he decided to make a movie about it. But um, right. but it, but it is an interesting thing to notice. I also wanted to point out that Hugo, I, I didn't know that about the table for that shot in particular, but the very yeah. famous shot that uh, uh like kind of booms up into like the nightclub where Susan Alexander yeah. is singing in modern day and like great. kind of it moves through like the the, the sign uh, a big mm-hmm. sign of her name and the camera moves through that and uh, yeah. that was a that was a breakaway sign where like the camera approaches the sign and once it's like right up on it it breaks apart in two pieces and they move it out of the way so the camera can keep moving yes forward more which uh, is similar to the stuff. table I mean, which is just awesome and- like People are really it's smart. <laughs> I wanted to yeah. talk a, a little bit about with the the lighting in particular, and maybe maybe you know one of you will have more insight on it. Is is this a difficult uh, way for actors to perform with the way things are lit in this? Is it harder for them with you know like they like in several shots? Like I have one on the screen right now where very clearly there is a bright light that is definitely shining in the face of the guy who's sending out. Uh, the reporter on the you know to go find out what Rosebud is. Uh, yes. You know the the light of the projector is lighting him up, so he is one hundred percent being blinded. Is did 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 actors have problems with this with the lighting being so drastic? I haven't heard any stories of actors having problems with that, but I would imagine it wasn't the easiest conditions to work in. Um, in particular, I'm thinking about uh, a shot where the reporter goes to see. Um, uh, Susan Alexander the first time and she like refuses to talk to him and there's a shot where he's like inside the phone booth in the foreground completely in shadow you can't see his face right and then in the background behind him you can still see Susan Alexander very well lit and yeah um to have that kind of uh sharp focus in the foreground and the background which Susan Kane does a lot it's just the deepest focus you've ever seen to have that kind of focus in the background you have to have really intense light um, the further you are from the camera, the more intense the light has to be. So the fact that she's, like, well-lit, far in the background, like, that light had to be very, very intense and very hot. She's um, practically baking back there. Yes. Yes. Um, again, they, I don't know any, like, I haven't heard any first-hand accounts of actors complaining about that, but, like, that is, like, a reality of what they had to do. But I feel like uh, there's also an element of uh, Orson Welles. This is his debut film. We'll talk about that, too. That's crazy. Um, but Aside from that, he came from theater. So the really aggressive, intense lighting is probably something that he had in his background, uh, more so than probably movie directors or movie point. actors even had. Um, yeah, I think the lighting in here so is he, definitely very theatrical. 
very yeah, theatrical. Know, and the fact one, that it one changes source during the scene. One thing. Very theatrical. I love that it, how it changes during a scene in a way that isn't realistic at all, that doesn't make sense, but it works for the dramatic effect of the scene. Um, yeah. It, 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 yeah, it breaks all the rules. Because if you look at a movie from this time, even the movies that look really good, like let's take, I don't know, John Ford movies or that type of thing, which look great to this day. The camera really doesn't move this way. The camera just doesn't move yeah. this way at all. And the focus is not this way. There's a background and there's a foreground. And when they when, when the scene has to change the blocking, either the camera moves in a really linear way or they cut. And this yeah. film is just, this film just feels completely different to those movies. It, it, and it has this uh dynamic effect that a lot of these movies don't have that a lot of old movies one of the things that is that makes them hard to get into is that they look static they look still and and so it can be a bit jarring for a modern audience mm -hmm. and you know dramatic and another angles thing too. too dramatic angles as well yes yeah they, there, um... there's always an interesting angle that they use for everything and again like you know most movies at the time are shot kind of more at eye level and yes. Citizen Kane is not. And I think that um, they used fake ceilings. Like, the ceilings were yeah. just, like, cloth. And that way they could, like, put lights and microphones behind the fake ceiling to, one, help light the scene better. Two, get better sound quality when the camera's, like, pointed at the ceiling. Because, you know, looking up at the character. And that's not a, that's not a kind of angle you usually see in the 1940s. No. I also wanted to touch on how this movie pioneered visual effects before the concept of visual effects was really even a thing. I yeah. I love in particular. I, I don't know if you guys have ever watched the you know the series VFX artist react on uh, from uh, Corridor Crew on YouTube. They're, no. They are special effects artists and they do they do funny you know videos using special effects on YouTube stuff like that. But on this series, they they talked about uh, uh, Citizen Kane in one episode. And particularly the thing that stuck out to me from that episode was when they discussed the audience at Kane's big speech when he's, you know, he's running for office. And you can see in the movie, the audience appears that it's moving, but they didn't film that in front of a stadium full of people. They had a, a, a plate that, you know, of an audience where they had cut out the outline or just the edge around some of the people and they moved a light source behind it to make the, the, the lighting and shading change in the background of the picture, to make the audience look like it was moving. That is insane. How do you right. think to do that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, think, uh, I think Roger Ebert said that there's, like, as many special effect shots in Citizen Kane as there are, like, in one of the original Star Wars movies. I 100% <laughs> believe that. That, but, yeah, um, that makes sense. Like, in particular, I think there's a lot of, like, matte paintings. And that's, like, a thing. That was a thing, like, in the 40s and 30s and 50s. Like, matte paintings yeah. to give, like, a sense of scale and landscapes and everything. Um, most shots of Xanadu, uh, his home, unless yeah. it's, like, a close-up of a window or something like that, most, like, shots showing the complex are hand-drawn. Um, right. The opening <laughs> shots, like the opening shots, you know, it shows Xanadu out in the distance. You get progressively closer, progressively closer, progressively closer. Like every one of those is a hand drawn uh, of his mansion. But yeah, so I, I, I just, I'm, that's another one of those things that like earned points with me is that, you know, there's all these great visual effects that, you know, you, you see they, they, they hold up despite being so uh, like mechanical rather than 
you know, computer enhanced. It's it's really crazy. Oh, you cut out for me for a second there. Um, I didn't cut out. I was done but talking. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, right. yeah, but there was a weird, I think I lost your last word. And so I didn't notice that you were done. <laughs> but anyway, so, yeah, so we all agree. Uh, Scissors Kane, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. No, I mean, yeah. Obviously, it's it's fantastic and it's a landmark and, you know, worth talking about for hours. But uh, for the purpose of this podcast, uh, let's move on to our second uh, part of our double feature for film to remember this week, which is Mank, uh, the recently released uh, David Fincher film. And I don't know, um, how did you guys feel about this? Who I can start if you want. Uh, yeah, please. But, so... Um, I don't know. I feel like 2020 is just a year where stuff doesn't work out. Because uh, all the movies that I was so excited about for this year got delayed or didn't get released. And the few that did, which is Tenet and Mank, uh, basically, I I didn't love them. I thought Mank was good. It was well made. I appreciate uh, some of the ideas. I appreciate the fact that it was... Uh, filmed structurally, it was filmed in the same way as Citizen Kane. I think I, I think it's really cool that the, he uses uh, the same framing device uh, of something happening in the present, and then the story, the actual story, being told through back, uh, flashbacks, uh, little episodes of this man's life. But um, I thought it was uh, relatively conventional for a Fincher film. Uh, I didn't think it it had the, the same visual flourishes that a lot of his movies has um, have. And um, I don't know. And I also thought the editing was a little messy sometimes. Like it was hard to follow. And and I think the main criticism that I have of it actually is the story, which is very difficult to follow unless you, you have at least a passing interest in 1930s, you know, the studio system and... Um, 1930s politics and uh, you know there were moments where they were name dropping famous people that I didn't know who they were and I I did get a, a bit lost but did, well, like, not like that who said, Scott Fitzgerald is I don't know like some of the actors uh, some of the you know some of the studio execs uh, or Upton Sinclair who was the candidate okay, or well, you know so you should even, interesting yeah you should have heard yeah. of Up, Upton Sinclair <laughs> yes. Yeah, not even like as anyway. a political candidate, but as a as an author, he is you know right. he he took on the meatpacking industry, and I honestly didn't know he was ever a political candidate. Yeah, I, I, I know, honestly I, I'm sure I had heard that. And at it some might point, be, but it might me, it, it might be that I'm not from from America, because sure. you know I I did, I had a hard time following that stuff. But regardless of that, I don't you know uh, that stuff is maybe more of a personal thing for me. But right. anyway, so I can fully get into it. But anyway, I, I do really appreciate the fact that he made this movie because it's definitely a passion project of his. And it's really interesting. It, it, you know, it, it was a script written by his father who died before they were able to make the film together. Um, so I, I'm sure he, he, he got a lot of joy out of making this film. And, um, and I also think that uh, Gary Oldman is, as usual, absolutely brilliant in it. Mm. But what did you guys think? Grizz? I really Response. enjoyed the movie. 
I, I, you know, and it could be just again that I am an American, so maybe I've heard more, more, more of these people. Uh, but I found it fascinating, and the, the all the stuff about the, I, I mean, I guess I'm a sucker for Hollywood drama, so yeah. you know all the stuff with Mayer, uh, and you know how how like I didn't know having watched Citizen Kane that uh, Bernstein is loosely based on yes. Mayer. That's that's I so interesting. I, I didn't get that either. I didn't I didn't get that until his. Uh, his drunken speech his around the speech dinner at table. The party. Only, only <laughs> yeah. then did I realize, oh shit, Louis B. Mayer is Bernstein. Yeah, and yeah. I, and great scene. I, by the I, way. To me, that part clicked uh, when uh, at the at the party where the, where they're talking about Upton Sinclair, and uh, and Mayer gives a speech about how great William Randolph Hearst is, and I'm like, oh my god, yeah, it's just like Bernstein, always bloviating about how good uh, Charles Foster Kane is. And mm-hmm. so I that really clicked with me, and you know, and I also just really enjoyed in general uh, the seeing the parallels with Citizen Kane, because Citizen Kane is obviously based on you know uh, Hearst and his empire, uh, but it was really fun to see just how much they paralleled, and like how could anyone not have realized that this was about Hearst? There's no way. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure. I actually like. I, I knew obviously that like William Randolph Hearst tried to get Citizen Kane shut down, and like mm-hmm. a lot of it partially was responsible for why the movie wasn't a financial success. Is because people like movie theaters didn't want to upset William Randolph Hearst. Like I knew all that, but yeah. I, maybe I, I'm not sure. I knew how directly that was baked into the creation of the movie. Yeah, it like, was so mm-hmm. correlated. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, at least according to the movie Mank, Herman Mankiewicz. First of all, I had no idea that the creators of Citizen Kane like had personal relationships with William Randolph Hearst. Right. And, um, like, really did write it as an F you to the guy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty that, much. Yeah. Again, if, if Mank is to be believed. Yes, well, yeah. exactly. And, you know, so we had to take that with a grain of salt because, you know, mm-hmm. we're looking through the glasses of the future here. But uh, right. I, I mean, so That's I, I really thing. enjoyed the, the story, which to me is almost, like, for me personally, is almost always the most important thing for me yeah. to enjoy mm-hmm. a movie is to be fully invested in the story. I love that. I think Mank is a likable character, still flawed. Yes. Uh, which is important to keep a character interesting. But, uh, you know, he's, he's clearly a drunk and, you know, mm-hmm. but he's so clever. And I love clever writing. And this movie has that in spades. So, amazing yeah. dialogue. Amazing dialogue. The dialogue is fantastic. Yeah. Very the dialogue is amazing. And, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about uh, The Social Network later. And, you know, that's... Uh, you know, written by Aaron Sorkin, who's one of my favorite writers. Yes, same. This movie is not written by Sorkin, but it, it, the dialogue was still very Sorkin-esque in how witty mm-hmm. and how everybody is really smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think that I. It's interesting where where you two are on Mank. I think that I am kind of somewhere between you, but moving towards Grizz's perspective. Um, mm-hmm. I, I watched. I watched it last night and then i watched the first 20 minutes a second time and um i liked that i like my rewatch so far a lot better than my first watch and i think mm. it's because i was expecting the movie to be one thing and it's not really that and grizz it's interesting you say that mank is like a good guy and like a you know not really a bad dude i was expecting him to be a bad dude right you know this this, this is yeah. a david fincher movie after all he's a really i mean most of his movies are pretty cynical and yeah. you know, kind of uh, barbed, and 
Mank isn't. It's just like a a pretty nice movie for the most part. And I, like, ironically, the I hero... think that, that the movie is not cynical, but Mank himself is cynical. Yes. And yes. so yeah. it kind of like, I see a little bit of Fincher in the character of Mank, which is kind of cool. Right. And so like, Mank is a man out of his time. He's a man who has uh, progressive ideas that were frowned upon within the studio system. And so he had to keep them uh, for himself and sure. he couldn't really express them as much as he wants. And, and when he decides to do that, he, he pisses off everybody with Citizen right. Kane. Sorry, Josh, we keep cutting you off. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it's okay. I was just going to say that, like, I, I think that, you know, I, I finished the movie the first time, and, like, my wife really liked it, which is great. Yeah. I like when she likes movies. Uh, she's a <laughs> she's a sucker for old Hollywood stuff, so she liked it immediately, and I I liked it, but I, what I said to her was I felt like I felt like something was maybe missing, and I, I wanted to watch a second time to maybe if I could, like, figure out what that was, and I think what was missing for me the first watch is I was just, like, ex- I was kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. I was expecting, like, Mank to fall from grace at some point or you know um again for the movie to get mean or cynical and it kind of never did and so um that's not the movie's fault that i was expecting that and it didn't happen like it's again like i think the wrong expectation for me is what kind of hurt my first impression but like as i'm starting to watch a second time i I like it a lot more and like so i just want people to like kind of take the movie on its terms um it's also not really about like the disputed authorship of citizen kane really like, I kind of thought that would, that would be, like, a major point in the movie, and that's, like, a small footnote in the overall story. It's more just, like, about this guy, you know, sticking it to the man to some extent by writing this movie yeah. as a big F you to this guy that he disagrees with, you know? Well, and it's about, and it's about sticking to your guns, too. Yeah, yeah, your principles, he, exactly. Uh, originally, when he signed on to do the movie, did not, he had agreed to not receive a writing credit because he just needed a job, and, mm-hmm. and Orson Welles offered it to him. So yeah. as word gets out that he's working on this movie and the script gets out there and people you know his family his friends come to talk to him and they're all mad at him for doing this but they also all say it's the best thing he's ever done <laughs> go ahead josh right and it's interesting that you know citizen kane uh the, the movie Citizen Kane, the character charles foster kane begins the movie as a bit of an idealist he yeah. you know famously publishes his two like principles on the front mm-hmm. page of his paper you know uh committing himself to a certain standard and then uh by the end of the movie he's completely abandoned those and he's uh you know using the paper to his advantage try to shape public opinion the way he sees you know, the way he wants it to be and you know abandons his principles and mank on the other hand uh finds principles like uh, one of my favorite early scenes is when him and his team of writers are pitching to david o selznick and like they're supposed to have been working on this story for like a while and then they just walk in the room completely unprepared and just pitch a movie off the top of their heads and uh really great scene but like that kind of gives you a sense of what mank's priorities are he's too busy drinking and gambling to like take his job seriously but then he finds principles throughout the movie when he encounters something that he thinks is you know repugnant and wrong and uses his powers of screenwriting to fight that. Yeah, he's extent. the opposite of Charles Foster yes. Kane. He, yes. You know, it, it, yeah. And I think part of that, that's part of the reason I enjoyed it so much, was I like I like stories about good guys. and mm-hmm. uh, Yeah. Or, or, or about redemption, even, and we get right. that here. And I think I, would, I think I would have liked the movie more on first watch if I, like, wasn't expecting him to not be a good guy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, or I was expecting the movie to be more... Uh, barbed and cynical than it actually is. It's actually like a pretty nice movie, you know, which is not it is, your standard, it is. but it's good. Yeah. 
and maybe maybe that's where I'm feeling a disconnect from it because I I really enjoy a, a good heartwarming story. Uh, you know, Steven Spielberg. We talked about it. He's one of my mm-hmm. favorite directors ever. But Fincher also is my one of my favorite directors. Me too, and for sure. I'm I'm feeling a little bit conflicted about the fact that you know this movie is probably going to be what finally wins David Fincher an Oscar. It I'm not sure how you guys. Might how you feel about it but in in a year where not many movies released and it's you know it's a big classical story about uh hollywood Hollywood. (laughs) yeah it's about hollywood and the making of one of the most beloved films of all time and it's black and white and it stars gary oldman and it's about you know you know it's also a you know it's about sticking it to people who try to use the media for nefarious purposes which in 2020 feels important so that's another Oh yeah, and I'm not saying, not and I'm not Oscar saying, column. yeah, I'm not saying that all that stuff is bad. I'm just saying the fact that this film might get an acknowledgement uh, that other films in David Fincher's filmography didn't get is it, it bothers me a little bit, you know, because I, I think I think he he's he's one of the best, if not the best, genre directors working right now. And he's going to get the most recognition in terms of awards with a drama. What do you mean, genre, classical genre Hollywood director. drama? Well, he makes mystery thrillers. You know what I mean? He's the he's probably the best mystery thriller director working right now. I would say. Let's, let's not use you know? Manx's theoretical future Oscars as <laughs> hold that against the movie. I think. No, no, no. Yeah. And I'm not okay. And I'm not holding I, it against I get your the movie. Point. I, I I'm get not your holding point. it against like, the movie. I still think the movie is fantastic. I just, I just sort of, I'm not sure if that's what I'm looking for when I go see a Fincher film. And sure. I think the movie on its own, separate from the the fact that it was made by David Fincher, is fantastic. It's really good. Um, I, I just then when I think about David Fincher, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for Mindhunter. You know. Do we want to transition into the Fincher discussion? I think we can. Okay. I, I still want to talk a little bit more about okay, Mank, but yeah. I think it'll happen naturally. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I agree with you. Like, I think there was a time in my life when I kind of like held The Departed a bit at arm's length because it won Scorsese Best Picture and Best Director, and The, the Departed's not in my top five Scorsese. But like, who also I who cares? You know, I mean, I, I think yeah, it's I like great. I, I love it too, but it's it, it's not Raging Bull, Goodfellas, or Taxi Driver. Um, that's just a that's just a fact of life. Mm. But like, <laughs> but also like, who cares? You know, like it's it's. No, I love I the Oscars. I obsess over them every year, and uh, I hold them in higher regard than most people. But also, like they don't matter um, in the scheme of things. They don't. Um, is Mank better? I mean, we'll talk about our Fincher ranking, but like Mank is not in my Fincher top five either. But like, I also just kind of yeah. want Fincher to win an Oscar at some point, you know? Um, oh, absolutely! And I'll be really happy yeah. for him if he wins it with this film that is that feels really personal to him. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I just that. That's another thing. Is like you know, I, I mentioned that I'm. I've begun a rewatch and I already like it a lot more now that I kind of know what to expect, but I also want to like watch this through the eyes of this is a movie written by the director's father who is, you know, 15 years past. Um, That's interesting. And, you know, uh, his father, Fincher's given a lot of interviews this week, uh, you know, talking about his dad and like how they always talked about his dad was of the opinion that Citizen Kane is the best movie of all time. And that's not disputable. Like that's not something you can like, have a conversation about it. It's just a fact. And like, um, I think that I think Fincher and his dad were like having a conversation about raising Kane, the famous Pauline Kale book length movie review about the disputed authorship. And, you know, 
his Fincher's father's very interested in that. So David Fincher said, "Hey, write write a movie about it. Like, um, you think this this story needs to be, you know, better better known than than write it." And um, the fact that Fincher tried to get this made when Jack Fincher was still alive in the late '90s, but couldn't get it made until he was long dead, I I, I kind of wonder, you know. If you watch this with that lens, if there are things in the movie that you could pick up on that kind of not to psychoanalyze David Fincher too much, but like I wonder if there are things that let you psychoanalyze David Fincher a little bit. Hmm. It's I just know, a very loaded. It's a very loaded thing, you know. And I completely agree with that. And, I, and as I said, I, I I'm I'm happy for the man that he got to make this film, even if it's not necessarily what I want from him personally. I'm really happy that he did make it and that he did get to complete this idea. And I think it's. It's really interesting that Netflix is the place where these types of movies are, are able to exist in a way that, you know, he didn't manage to get it made in, in the 90s or in the beginning of the 2000s, you know, and, right. and you know, Alfonso Cuaron didn't manage to make Roma outside of Netflix. He made it with Netflix because it's and the, the Irishman. Yeah. And the, well, the Irishman, I think, is a different situation. Um, I have I have opinions on the Irishman, but well, I, I think that what, you know, I, th- I think what you're saying but I understand is that what you mean. Net- Netflix is willing to throw more money at, at filmmakers to make their passion projects yes. that other studios just aren't willing to do. Um, Netflix yeah. is working with different kind of margins, different kind of accounting. And you yeah. also have to, you know, point out that David Fincher kind of earned this. You know, he Absolutely. made he, he he made House of Cards, he made Mindhunter. He he earned his keep with Netflix and like as a reward yeah. they're giving him the money he wants to make the movie that he's been wanting to make for twenty years apparently. Yeah, but even but even with House of Cards and and Mindhunter, they're giving him free reign to make a David Fincher project through and through. And so, you know, I, I think I appreciate that about them, even if, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the idea of everything becoming streaming, but I appreciate that Netflix gives these interesting filmmakers the money to make what they want, you know? Yeah. Uh, I really appreciate I, it. I, I wonder how much... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, 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 sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought, because I, 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 I just have a want to say, I, I wonder how much free reign he had with House of Cards, because that is that is a TV show uh, made by an algorithm. Um, it's it's not an accident that it was that popular, because Netflix has all of our data and all of our preferences. Yeah. They know they know exactly <laughs> who the most popular actors are, who the most popular filmmakers are, and what the most popular topics are. So they basically mm-hmm. said, okay, we we need Kevin Spacey in a movie in a, in a TV show about politics. And David Fincher is also really popular, so let's let him do it. So, yeah, those three things, I think if we put them together, it'll be a hit. And uh, they were exactly right. That was a hit. So, again, I wonder I wonder how much free reign he had or if they're just like, hey, uh, these parameters, because this is what the algorithm tells us, and go. And uh, That's true. I mean, That's can't true. Argue the result. But it's also really well made. Yeah. So I'm not mad about it, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> if it was, it, it doesn't feel like a cash, bra- a cash grab, even if it is to a certain extent. Every, everything is a yeah. cash grab. Everything. Yeah, exactly. Like, let's exactly. Not, let's not be cute here. No one makes a movie yeah. to lose money. Right. Yeah. Except the producers. <laughs> <laughs> Springtime. Except whoever, except the people who are giving money to Zack Snyder right now. Oh, but oh. let's forget about that. <laughs> okay, well, so my question anyway, was uh, regarding Oscars. Okay, go ahead, sorry. Uh, do we think Gary Oldman? I mean, we're pretty confident he's going to get a nomination for this, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. What yeah, about so. Amanda Seyfried? Yeah, definitely. Maybe. I, I Maybe. think she can uh, in get a, a, in a nomination year... for uh, supporting actress here. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. I think definitely. no. I think she's really good. I think she was really good, and uh, you know, 
I do think sometimes the acting performances are uh, a bit snobbed when it comes to Netflix movies. Uh, I don't know. It's just sort of a thing that I tend to This notice, year might force I, some I hands in, a, in that regard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I was, I was going to say this year, I think Mank is going to get a lot, a lot of attention and it's not undeserved. So, you know. I think, I think actually uh, her chances of winning an Oscar are better than Gary Oldman's. I mean, that's kind of a different conversation about... No, I, I agree, especially with Oldman having but... won so recently. Well, he, 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 could, he won a couple years put, ago. Who would you put up against him, though, this year? Well, I mean, the, the current the current betting odds and the current narrative is that Chadwick Boseman is going to win a posthumous Best best Actor for uh, Ma Rainey's right. Bottom, which most people haven't seen yet. I haven't right. seen yet, but like, right. just kind of like this, that's just like the consensus at the moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, oftentimes... Oftentimes, acting Oscars are kind of just decided by consensus months in advance. Yeah. Uh, see Renee Zellweger and Judy last year. They just kind of decided yeah. in September, hey, she's probably going to win an Oscar for this. And then she that narrative yeah. never then changed, you know, yeah. over five months. Yeah. And so um, Gary Oldman to win Best Actor would be having an uphill battle against a beloved, now tragically past actor. Yeah. And, um, you know, the fact sure. that he won two years ago or three years ago is not in his favor either. So, like, again, I yeah. think... I have no idea who's going to run supporting actress this year. I don't know what Samantha, I mean, it's safer, it's competition would be, but I think I like her chances yeah. of winning more than Carrie. I'm always surprised by her as that. an actress. At She's how, great, man. How good she is. Me too. And I think it, She's great. it just stems from the first place I remember seeing her was Mean Girls. Same, man. Yeah, Karen. <laughs> and like she was great in Mean Girls, but like... Okay. So I thought you were going to say her, something like, bad about Mean Girls. That's the girl from cause... Mean Girls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, it, it, all due respect to everyone that I'm about to mention, but like, you know, Lacey Chabert, another person, Mean Girls, is now doing Hallmark movies, and I don't yeah. expect, you know, a level. Of, yeah, I don't know. Amanda Seyfried's done really well for herself, and you know, yeah, good for her. She's done great. <laughs> She's done great. So, okay, now we have an interesting part because we have to rank our films to remember, and yeah. our current ranking is. I think we should do one one at a time. Start with uh, Susan Kane and sure. then do Mank. Okay, so our current ranking is The Thing at number one, Rudy at number two, uh, Jackie Brown at number three, and The Sugarland Express at number four. And I'd like just to start uh, saying I probably like The Thing more than Citizen Kane, but I can't argue against Citizen Kane being number one. Well, against with, this competition. Without without explaining anything, just like tell me where you put Citizen Kane, both of you. So the, the the problem becomes, what is this list about? Is it the movie we liked best, or is it the best movie? I think, okay, since it's going you, to use be... Use your judgment. <laughs> okay, since it goes, it's going to get stupid, because we're just going to pile on movies on this list, I think we should go by enjoyment. Okay. And I, I think, but it, but it still has to be a balance, you know. Yeah, I mean, so, obviously, I, I'll, it's I'll tough. take that it's into tough. consideration. It's a tough choice. Uh yeah. I enjoy Rudy more than Citizen Kane. Oh, God. I do. I, you know, I'm completely biased in that regard because Rudy <laughs> is, means so much to me. Uh, so if it was purely based on enjoyment, I would put Rudy ahead of Citizen Kane. But I also know what but... Citizen Kane means to cinematic history, and I'm not going to put Rudy above Citizen Kane. So I think I would probably have to put it at number one, even though I I technically enjoy the other movies more. <laughs> like I'm more more inclined to watch those again than Citizen Kane. <laughs> right. 
Um, yeah, I I think I'm okay with yeah. number one. I, I think I'm kind of thinking of this list as like a a recommendations list. Yeah. You know, like how, right. how would I how would I rank these? If you haven't seen any of these, how would I rank them in terms of like which ones you should prioritize seeing? Which mm-hmm. kind of way of looking at it is it's so it's 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 you know a bit of an amalgamation of like what I personally think about it and also like what other people think about it. Um, so I can't not put Citizen Kane number one. Yeah. I probably would anyway, but um, Citizen Kane number one for sure for me. Yeah, I, I agree. If, if I like that idea, looking at it from this is our recommendations, you know, for movies mm-hmm. that you should watch. Everyone should watch Citizen Kane. Everyone should definitely. Watch it. <laughs> yeah, Hundy P. So we have Citizen Kane at number one now, and then we have Mac, which I think is interesting because um, I find it a bit difficult because. The list is starting to get complicated because I wouldn't put it above Jackie Brown, but I would put it above Rudy. <laughs> so within the context of the list, I would put it on number three. Above Rudy, below the thing. Um, um, go ahead, Josh. And you guys are going to argue that to put it below Rudy and well, I'm going to try. No, I mean, that's also complicated. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I would I, personally, I would recommend Rudy before I'd recommend Mank if we're going to talk about the list in those terms. Right. Um, but I mean, what, what's complicated is that we all just saw Mank like a day ago or mm-hmm. something like that. And these other movies have been in the cultural consciousness for minimum 25 years or, you know, 23 years, whatever. And so, yeah. uh, you know, how do you, how, how do you place that? Um, the, Mank hasn't percolated in my head enough in, you know, like I said, I've only just begun a rewatch and already feel better about it than I did on the first viewing. So it's, I don't know. Um, my instinct is to put it behind Jackie Brown. But I don't, I don't really know. That's that's right. a this is a dumb thing we're doing, but we're doing it anyway. Yes, it's fun. That's, that's the point. It's dumb. That's the point. Fun. It has to be stupid. Uh, I I'm would, okay with it below Jackie Brown. I love Jackie Brown. <laughs> I would put it above Jackie Brown personally. Right. So I think this averages out to between Rudy and Jackie Brown then, based on it does. Yes, answers. I think it would. That's cool. I think it would. Yeah. Yes, I like that. So we have Mank below Rudy. And so our list is now Citizen Kane, The Thing, wow. Rudy, Mank, Jackie Brown, and The Sugarland Express. Mank above Jackie Brown. Cool. Yeah, I like that. That's cool. <laughs> the problem is not right. Mank above Jackie Brown, but let's not, you know, Look, pour salt on old you wounds. Know, you're, trying to, you're trying to make it out like you didn't enjoy Rudy. You had fun with it. Stop acting like you didn't have fun with Rudy. Rudy was fine. It's Rudy a seminal fine. classic. It's a seminal classic. It is and it's, absolutely it's fine. And also, go Irish, 10-0. 10-0, baby. Playoffs, baby. Well, I shouldn't say playoffs yet, but... Conference champions. Really? <laughs> They're going on yeah, First year in a conference, we're already running the place. What's up, boys? Where you at? I have no idea what that means. Um, but, fine. Okay, so, we don't have a lot of time left, but, uh, but I mean, we were expecting this because talking about two movies and talking about Citizen Kane, which is so important and there's so much to say... Uh, we were expecting to probably not have a lot of time at the end of the show to talk about David Fincher. So what what we thought we should do in this case, if we didn't have a lot of time left, was just quickly list off uh, our top five Fincher films and just react to each other's list and see what we think. You know. Okay. So who wants to start? Uh, with five. We'll start. With uh, five. No, I think we I think we should go five to one, and you just say your whole list and we react to it because like start we with don't five have a lot of time. So yeah, yeah, start with okay. five. I don't have mine written down, but I'll just go off the top. Number five, right. Gone Girl. Uh, hmm. Yeah, Gone Girl five. Let's go seven four. <laughs> um, Fight Club three. <laughs> seven four. Yeah, Fight Club three. Um, 
One and two are pretty interchangeable, so let's go Zodiac 2 and Social Network 1. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Grizz? Uh, I also agree. Gone Girl 5. Nice. nice. Uh, cool. I have Mank as my fourth favorite Fincher movie. Cool. Uh, awesome. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. Seven I have at third, then The Social Network, and then Fight Club. And I... Okay. You know... This week I rewatched I watched a bunch of Fincher movies and I rewatched uh, I rewatched Gone Girl and I, because when I first watched Gone Girl I I liked I gave it a nine out of nine out of ten I I really enjoyed it and I still really enjoyed it the second time but I think I didn't I, I definitely didn't enjoy it as much and and I, when, before I went to rewatch it I started thinking like I don't even really remember that much about the movie all I remember is I really liked it so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm glad I rewatched it, but uh, now I'm much more confident in my rankings. I actually I like Gone Girl more the more times I watch it, and I've seen it probably I don't know four or five times now, and it just gets it gets better and better for me. I love that movie, man. What do you right. got, Hugo? So my list is at five I have The Girl with Dragon Tattoo, at nice. four I have Gone Girl, at three I have Zodiac, at two I have Fight Club, and at one I have Seven. Cool. So, okay, so social we network all, we all have, is we not all have on my list. Network. Oh, it's not. I don't. Okay. He doesn't have social it's network. Not Hugo doesn't have social network. Grizz doesn't yep. have Zodiac, which are my one and two. Yep. So you guys are both crazy. But we both, all three of us, have uh, seven Fight Club Gone Girl and, and Gone Girl. Club, yeah. yeah. Wow, yep. that's cool. Zodiac was I, my I, six. I was expecting to be in the minority with Gone Girl my top five, but uh, I'm glad this is no, a, think... a Gone Girl podcast. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Gone Girl, I think Gone is Girl stands. I. But okay. So my list. Yeah. My list, you will notice, is all thrillers because uh, that's the type of film that I gravitate towards. Where, where's uh, Panic Room on your list? Panic Room is seven. Okay. So it's six, Social Network, Panic Room, seven. I just... Okay, so r- real quick. So Social Network is six, is six for Hugo and Zodiac yeah. is six for Grizz. Okay. Yeah. That makes me feel yeah. a little bit better. So they're all, you know, they're all close. I, I don't think Social Network is worse than any of the films in my top five. I just enjoy those genres more and so that's my list but well, i mean such an another excellent film yeah earlier you you said that he was you know he's a thriller director and yes i you know curious case of benjamin button uh social network and now mank we're looking yeah. at you know a huge that's chunk of, of his 10. filmography is not thrillers that's fair but it's three out of ten is not thrillers and That's the rest a is good chunk in in the in it the is a good chunk things. it is a good chunk uh, and i'm no well uh, what i was saying is not that he is a thriller director i don't want to pigeonhole him in that sense but i do th- what i'm saying is he's one of the best thriller he is. directors one in, in the thriller once genre, he decides he to great. make a thriller it's so well directed and his sensibility works perfectly for that genre which doesn't mean that he doesn't make great dramas because i do think his dramas are really good as well um but you know what I mean? It, uh, I was saying that in that sense. Not that he can't make a drama or that he shouldn't, you know. So I kind of wanted to ask, what happened with Alien 3? Why oh, is this too... everything. Why is it so mediocre? Everything. Well, I haven't <laughs> seen it. I haven't seen it, first of all. But... Do you know the stories about Alien 3, Grizz? Or, no, that's what or I'm are you actually why, genuinely what, what asking? Okay. Um, Alien 3, basically, he had ideas for the film, and then the studios wouldn't allow him creative freedom at all. all. And most of what the film is now are reshoots that were done without him. Uh, Yeah, he he, he, 
he they were directed. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't acknowledge it as part of his filmography, and he didn't participate in the what they call the special edition, which is supposedly closer to his original vision. But he didn't participate in it because a lot of the shots that he wanted to do and the sequences that he wanted to do are not in the movie because basically he left, and they did reshoots without him uh, and without a director. Wow. So that's why it feels so flat and so mediocre at times because sequences were just not directed. A studio producer was on set and was telling the actors what to do and the cameramen what to do. I just don't so know how you let that happen with a property like Alien. How do you well, let um, it fall apart that much? You I mean, don't he was get like, it. He was, like, he was like 26 when he made it. I don't like, mean him. Studio. I'm saying you know the studio. How did the studio let this movie well, fall I apart think, like that? It was the 90s. I, th- I think that's a, it's, a, it's a case of studio and filmmaker on different wavelengths and, yeah. you know, that's why they kind of took it from him because they didn't like the direction he was going. And like, you know, when you, when you have two different visions there, you're going to get a mess. That's, that's not that crazy. They didn't respect his vision, you know, and which, which is, you know, to some extent is understandable for a first time director, but then don't hire a first time director for your big franchise movie. If you're not going to give them the reins, you know, I think uh, recent times have showed that giving directors creative freedom usually allows even your blockbusters to be better because just looking at the marvel movies for example or even the recent star wars films whenever the directors had more creative freedom the movie is better and whenever the the studios interfered too much the movie usually is a little worse and so you know that that doesn't work all the time because you know again zack snyder i've talked about zack snyder Zack Snyder yeah. again i think there's <laughs> there's a lot of uh there's a lot of Hugo, I understand your perspective. I think there's a lot of generalizations yeah. there, though, that I'm not comfortable that, making. There are. About. Um, you know, we there also are, don't know. But... We, I have no idea how much, you know, producers influenced certain blockbusters recently. Like, we like Absolutely. to think of them as, as, as more uh, artistic visions of the director. But, like, I don't know. We don't know that for sure. Um, well, you know, but it depends. It depends on which ones you talk about. I do think, I do think that, you know, the Alien franchise started out as, you know... Uh, great directors making franchise movies you know making blockbuster movies because the original alien ridley scott is one of one of the best films in my opinion in its genre ever made uh, and then the sequel you give it to james cameron who just made you know the terminator and then you know and, and he makes this amazing action movie and then for the third one you give it to this one-time director who you're not even going to trust with a film that's ju- I think that's just bad. That's just bad choices from the studio. But you know, I think that this uh, this experience, you know, affects Fincher in such him. that he he's he's more cautious of of studio interference and, and more insistent yeah. on creative control. And now he's one of the few filmmakers, the few directors who can get final cut from from a studio yeah. nowadays. That's very very rare now. And it's interesting that Mank begins with the title card explaining the. Um, lucrative creative freedom that orson wells had yeah it says in kane and yeah. like fincher is now one of the few guys that has something close to that because like he didn't you know after alien 3 he's like no this is gonna happen again yeah he wasn't gonna compromise again and i think it's it's one of the reasons why his movies are so unique and so recognizable and you know whether you can like ask, them or not they're just instantly recognizable can That's i ask great. about fight club uh yes. I, I it's my hmm. my favorite uh, Fincher movie. Uh, what is it about my it that, that makes it fall short for you guys? Um, I mean, it's my number four. It's my number two. My number three. My number three. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, what what I think um, 
I've, you know, I think we've all had evolving experiences with Fight Club. You know, I, I first saw it when I was like, yes. you know, 16, 17, and I feel I felt one way about it, as I think most 16, 17 year old boys feel about Fight Club. And then, you know, you kind of grow up and see what the movie's doing. Actually, about um, yeah. Yeah, I think that that might be. I mean, I don't want to generalize. I think that it might be a bit of a, a bit of a misunderstood movie. Yeah, I was actually going to say I that's think. probably the most misunderstood movie in terms of like Obviously, as far as like yes. super popular movies. Yes, um, I think that. Yeah, I think a lot of people are. You know, again, I don't want to generalize. I think some people may like it for um, uh, the exact opposite reasons that the movie wants you to like it. Right. It kind of yeah. takes it takes the opposite. They take the opposite message from what the movie is telling them, um, and I think that some of its detractors say the same thing like some of the movie's detractors think that it's glorifying x y and z when it's actually critiquing x y and z um which is interesting because uh um citizen kane kind of does that it, it glorifies yeah. a certain lifestyle and mindset and then criticizes it in the back half but i don't think anyone would ever mistake citizen kane with glorifying um what, what that that first stuff the way that people do for fight club right yeah, I completely agree, and I I think we won't have we didn't have time to get to that, but we were going to talk about you know the themes and and we still have, and, we still have and, a few minutes and if you want to talk yeah about and quick. you know we could, yeah I'm just gonna just gonna talk about it really quickly. I think one of the main themes of David Fincher's movies is toxic masculinity, and he puts that at the forefront. And Fight Club, I think, is the one movie that is absolutely about toxic masculinity, is and as well as many other things. But he puts that in the foreground in a way that to someone who doesn't think about it critically might seem like he's glorifying it and making it look cool. But the point is that Tyler Durden looks cool. He looks like this fun person. Very, he looks like someone yeah. you want to be, but then you have to understand that he's awful and you actually don't want to be him. Yeah, you know? uh, it, it, it took me a few viewings to realize that Marla Singer, the Helena Bottom Carter character, is like the most sane person mm -hmm. in Absolutely. Fight Club. Absolutely, And, and yes. she's really like, I don't know if you'd call her admirable, but she's the closest thing to an admirable character yeah. in the movie. The one female that, character. Yes, and that's um, the other thing that I wrote. His movies are absolutely about misogyny. Hmm. And the female characters in his movies, most of the time, are the voice of reason. They might be in the background, but Gone they're the voice of reason. I was going to say, like, what, yeah, Gongo no, <laughs> is an exception. Gongo well, you have is an Go. exception. You have Go. Um, um, yeah. What's the actress's name? Uh, the the Kira sister. Kira Kira the sister yeah, character. Sorry. Yeah. The wonderful character. There's very often a female character who's the voice of reason, while the man is obsessive and self-centered and um you know going off on his own deep end and obsessions and yes. you know and I creating that, the problems that in his life for himself i, I think fincher movies can be they're, they're easy targets for accusations of misogyny um, i'm thinking i'm thinking specifically of dragon tattoo and gone girl yeah. uh and fight club and the social network but mm -hmm. i think um, the they may be easy targets, but it, they may be a little more complicated than they initially appear from a misogyny perspective. We, not saying they aren't misogynistic, but no, um, I'm, I'm so saying like, they're not. I'm saying they're portraying misogyny yeah. to criticize it. Yes, but the, the fact the fact is that it's so visceral and direct the way certain really dark things are portrayed in his movies that it makes it look like if you don't really think about it, it, it can make it look like sometimes. He's right, just yeah, presenting yeah. something and glorifying it. 
Because, you know, there's some... They're easy targets for it, yeah. Yeah. They are, absolutely. That you have to think about what he's doing and why to understand why I don't think his movies are misogynistic. Yeah. Okay. Where where are you guys at on the... Go ahead, Gris, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Where are you guys at on the game? I had fun with it. I I think there's... it, It would be better... It, it asks for too much suspension of disbelief. Yes. It does. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and so that um, takes me out of it a little bit. I think that that's an interesting uh, case study in um, how, how much obsession creeps into all of Fincher's movies. I think I, yeah. you mentioned toxic masculinity as a recurring theme. I think obsession is the biggest recurring theme. Yeah. And, and control. It, and control. Yeah. As well. and, and maybe I'm, I'm reading into that a little bit because he is, by all accounts, like maybe the most obsessed, obsessive filmmaker uh, working today where he gets, you know, yeah. uh, he sees details that no one else sees and, and demands dozens of takes and, and that kind of thing. So, like, uh, the game is textually about obsession. Um, I, I mean, that it's a theme that comes – Zodiac as well. There, it, it comes up a lot in his movies, but um, yeah. that one in particular. Um, yeah, I, like, I, think... I like the game, but I, I'm kind of with you, Grizz, that it, it – you know something about what it the maybe. game what the game is missing is um fourth wall breaks i think if the game was was winking and nodding at the camera a little more and acknowledging how ridiculous it actually is it would work a bit better but the fact that it takes maybe. it so straight and so seriously it, mm-hmm. it after you know after an hour and 20 minutes of tension building and tension building and tension building at some point you're going to something is going to happen and you're just going to say oh that that wouldn't happen that's too much it, it kind of runs because into it the goes problem. on for so long it, it runs into the problem that i but have good. with yeah. like basically any time anyone supports a conspiracy theory i'm like you're telling yeah. me yeah. this many people are involved and no one yeah, is, yeah. is that's telling? A, it's a good yeah. it's a good critique yeah for sure <laughs> okay well so what do we, what do we got next week hugo Next week, uh, we thought we were going to talk about another movie that is, well, that is releasing next week, although it's a really old movie. Well, not really old, but it's an older movie. Basically, next week on the 8th, um, the final cut or the director's cut or whatever you want to call it of uh, another film that had a lot of studio interference, The Godfather Part 3, is releasing. Um, Francis Ford Coppola... Um, recut the movie he re-added in some scenes that were deleted and apparently the ending is different and the beginning is different it's like there are major differences to this movie from the original version of godfather part three and so we thought we would uh, talk about this movie since it's releasing uh, next week as our film to remember and then do the main topic on uh, the godfather trilogy and why it's so significant and why it's so important um for movies so so cool. i think that's it. What, what is? Give us the full title of the the recut. <laughs> yes, because that's particularly ridiculous. Because this is the original title that that Coppola wanted to give the film, and it's uh, Mario Puzo's The Godfather, comma Coda, The Death of Marco Michael Corleone. So it it's a stupid title, um, but <laughs> I I think, I think I think it's I think it's insane. But in a good way. Um, but anyway, I love Coppola, Coppola movies, and I'm always interested when he recuts them because I think he always does some really cool, interesting things that actually change what the film is. And anyway, so that's our topic next week. Cool. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. <laughs> <laughs> I remember to say. Boilerplate. Ooh, boilerplate. Yeah. Hell yeah.
All we right. didn't forget. Happy anyway, Mac week, bye. guys. Happy Mac week. Happy Mac week. Yeah. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone.